Hey, if you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. You picked a great Sunday to join us. We are headed toward the end of this book of 2 Corinthians, and this is uh, what many commentators call really the climax of this book. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to be. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you or around you somewhere. Steal somebody's, grab it, and find 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to go from verse 30 uh, into really the first paragraph of chapter 12. We're in the middle of Paul's, uh, Paul building this argument in chapters uh, really 10, 11, 12, and into uh, 13. Paul has been dealing with uh, the qualifications of the false apostles who have convinced a minority in the Corinthian church to follow them. And what Paul has been doing throughout this section of 2 Corinthians is boasting, or for lack of a better term, to do a fool's boast. It's been a fool's speech for Paul, where Paul is taking the qualifications that these false apostles are claiming, and he's highlighting them. He's showing you that the way they compare themselves with one another, the way their standards are according to the world's values, those standards are insufficient to either... Uh, lay claim to Paul as an authentic apostle or even to evaluate apostles in general. So what we saw last week were two particular ways in which the false apostles were claiming authenticity for their ministry. One was their Jewishness, that they had a Jewish heritage. And then the other one was in the work that they had done for the Lord. And if you remember what Paul said, Paul went through this, this litany, this, this incredible list of sufferings. And what Paul did in that was not say he's an ascetic of somebody who just likes hard things and he moves towards hard things. So he gives you a list of them and says, look at how hard I've worked. But what Paul is trying to get across to this church is that his ministry causes him to be profoundly insufficient to the task. His ministry calling reveals in him a profound weakness and inability to accomplish what God wants to do. So that when you look at Paul's life, and Paul faces these accusations. You saw this in, in chapter 10 where they say his letters are weighty and strong, but in person he's timid and he's weak and his speech is of no account. And Paul has been consistently showing us that his weakness and his perceived timidity are not actually evidence of his, um, of his failure as an apostle, but that they affirm his true apostolic calling to and for this church. So I want, what we're going to do is pick up in the middle of Paul's argument. And by the end of our time today, this passage is perhaps one of the most uh, significant ones when you consider how God works with a heart. You know, if you go back into the Old Testament, you consider the encounters that men have with God. You consider, uh, you remember the burning bush episode between Moses and God. When, when God shows up in the burning bush and he calls Moses to go free his people and Moses has this argument with God where Moses feels like, I'm not qualified, I can't do it, I don't speak good, that's intentional, that's not a pun. Uh, he says, I, 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 there are all these obstacles. When God encounters Gideon and Gideon is hiding out and the angel of the Lord shows up with Gideon and says, Gideon, you've got work to do. When God calls Isaiah and Jeremiah, these prophets, 
and they're exposed and revealed for who they are when they encounter God, you're getting a picture of what it's like for an individual to meet God face to face. What happens in that moment? What happens when God's power encounters the weakness of the Apostle Paul? How would you suggest you sanctify an apostle? How would you suggest that God go about teaching lessons about himself to an apostle? How do you think God is going to do that in you? How is God going to invite you into situations in your life where he's going to reveal more of who he is, more of who you are, and how dependent we are upon his grace? So in Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we have been dealing with Paul's relationship with the church, right? False apostles, true apostles. Who should we be listening to? We've been dealing with Paul's doctrine. These guys preach uh, this kind of Jesus with this kind of spirit, with this kind of gospel. Well, what kind of gospel, spirit, and Jesus does Paul preach? So we've seen Paul's relationship with his doctrine. We've seen Paul's relationship with people. We've even seen Paul's relationship with himself. How he's come to recognize that I am a servant and we boast in the Lord. Not that we are leaders and we are the Lord, but we are your servants for Christ's sake. But what you're going to get at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, all of that is going to start to fade away. You're not going to have the false prophets take front and center. You're not going to have the church front and center. What you... And what me are going to experience in this text is the hallowed ground of God and the human heart. What is God doing in our hearts when we encounter him in our lives? And let me be honest, when I read this text and I go back to the mountain peaks of sanctification in my own life, I see this text all over them. Because for a lot of us, our sanctification journey is do more good things, do fewer bad things, right? And we gauge ourselves in our sanctification journey and our walk with God as kind of an up and down. Well, I'm doing good today because I'm doing good things, so I'm doing bad things the next day. I've got to turn it around and do good things again so that me and God can be close. And what this text shows you is God invading Paul's heart. God taking the initiative to do something in Paul that Paul cannot do on his own. So by the end of our time together, it's going to be you and God face to face. Because we're going to look at Paul's life and we're going to look at Paul's relationship with God. And we're going to see a lot of what we, we ourselves need to learn about our own relationship with ourselves, with God, and with the seasons of life that he's put us in. You with me so far? Well, let's pray and ask God for his grace as we jump into this here. Father... We pray for just a moment and we confess, like Jesus says in John 15, that you are the vine and we are the branches. And Father, for all of our hearts as we gather here this morning, for the people who came in this morning who are in the middle of a difficult season, who are feeling particularly weak, I pray that this text would give them great comfort and courage to face the season of life that they are in. Father, all of us at certain times in life have come to the place where we are at the end of ourselves, and even the Apostle Paul does here in this passage. So, Father, I pray that you would deepen us, that you would um, build our theology, 
that we might understand really what you're getting at when it comes to our spiritual life and our spiritual growth that you desire to work in us. So Father, comfort us, encourage us, direct us to know some things about ourselves and about you that perhaps we've never considered before. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Y'all there? Look at verse 30. We ended last week in verse 30 with this uh, boast of Paul. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And we said last week when Paul gave you this, this list of sufferings and difficulties, we said that Paul is sharing with us all of these things that make him feel insufficient and make him feel not up to the task, but they become a particular boast for Paul. They become the foundation out of which he admits something incredibly important about himself. Now, what's funny about Paul in reading through these things is that he's about to share a story with us that begins his Christian life. But before he does that, he kind of says something in verse 32 I'm sorry, verse 31, to say what I am saying is of incredible importance. Look at verse 31. So verse 30, if I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. Verse 31, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Now, why Paul says that, this verse serves a little bit as a pivot. Because everything that has preceded it has been sufferings. Would you agree? Say yes. Okay, you're there. Good. What is about to follow is a story and the supernatural. So Paul pauses for just a minute. And he says, in effect, I swear to God this is true. God is the one who can witness that what I am saying to you is true. Remember what Paul says earlier in this book where he says, is this because I don't love you? And he says, God knows I love you. So all along the way in Paul's argument, he is appealing for God to validate the truth that he's saying. He's appealing to God to validate that his heart is, the, is there for the Corinthians. He loves them. He values them. And now, as he lists his weakness, he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't try to cover up real sufferings and real difficulties. He says, I swear that this is true. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed forever, he knows that I'm not lying. When God calls, when Jesus shows up and interrupts Paul's life on the way to Damascus to persecute Christians... Jesus invades Paul's life and completely changes his direction, right? From that point on in Paul's life, nothing that Paul encounters is random. Even Paul's training up to this point has been particularly designed by a God who knows what he's going to do with the Apostle Paul. So when God interrupts him, what you're going to see all throughout this passage, in all of Paul's sufferings that we saw last week, in this embarrassing story he's about to tell, and in the supernatural visions that he's about to relate, are all viewed with a spiritual lenses. Have you ever, this happens to me all the time, when I face situations in life that frustrate me or discourage me, a lot of times I view them as random. Do you ever do that? 
where I have a tendency to divorce God's sovereignty and God's providence from things that annoy me. We just had, uh, is Danny, Danny, you here? Danny, where are you? Right there. Danny was on, she was getting ready to go to Belize. I didn't plan to do this. Sorry, this happens if you're in the church. Danny's getting ready to go to Belize with the team. Her flights get delayed. There's a storm coming. She has to make the call that she's not going to go to the Belize because her flights get delayed. She'll show up two days late. She'll have to travel alone. She won't be there with the team. Then she's going to have to turn around and come out by herself. Is that annoying? See? She just said amen. When I walk through my life, I have a tendency to divorce the spiritual from the physical. Do you ever do this? Where I go, it can't be that God's involved down here. Spiritual things, God's really involved. Uh, important things, God's really involved. Really need God to show up over here. Normal things, groceries, keys, the lawn, none of that. God's not involved in that. That's simple stuff for simple people. Not Paul. Now, let me show you this. This is great. Look at verse 32. At Damascus... The governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Who cares? This is one paragraph after Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. You know that? It, in effect, begins Paul's apostolic calling and ministry. He just got healed from blindness. He starts preaching in the synagogue saying Jesus is who he says he is. Everybody gets mad. The Jews stir up a riot. They try to murder him. And his apostles have to sneak him out a window in a basket through a wall and let him down to the bottom of the ground. You could not get a more inauspicious beginning to the Apostle Paul's life. Now Paul's faced some, some suffering. This is the beginning of everything that you find between Acts chapter 9 and Acts 20. Paul just listed all the sufferings. But to begin this story, Paul says, I swear to God this is true. This is, and he tells you, an embarrassing story. It's like, I got wedgies in high school. Let me start there with my apostolic credentials. That's the wrong way to do it. If you're looking to start, if this is you, if you're out on YouTube right now and you're trying to start, I'm the next, you know, 14th apostle, and you're trying to do that, don't start like this. This is an embarrassing way to start his apostolic credentials, hiding in a basket, hoping, praying to God that the disciples that you have trained are strong enough and have done enough bent over rows to not drop you out a window. This is humiliating. Do you remember David? David gets anointed by Samuel, and then he plays the lyre really good. He gets invited into the, the king's quarters, and then the king tries to kill him. And then he's on the run for years. And the question is, David's, uh, the trials of David that David go through are not contrary to his calling as the next king, are they? In fact, his running and his fleeing and his suffering only confirm because the reason David is on the run is that he won't kill Saul. He refuses to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed, which means all of the sufferings that come because of his refusal. David is a bad man. He could have taken Saul. 
which means all of his running are actually, all of his suffering, all of his difficulty are actually validating the fact that he is the one and true right king who should reign. So while everybody else looks at his sufferings and go, he can't be the guy. He's on the run. He's a criminal. Nobody likes him. The king hates him. He is at the very same time validating the character that is in his heart as he is a man that God wants on the throne. So here's Paul. I swear to God, I got let down through a window. Now look at verse 12. This is, now if you want a summary, here's Paul's great descent. You're going to have Paul do this. In this text, Paul's going to do this. He's going to go down, he's going to go up, and then he's going to go back down. Look at verse 1. I must go on boasting. Now this has been Paul since 2 Corinthians chapter 11, right? Turn back, look at how 11 begins. I wish you'd bear with me in a little foolishness, do bear with me. Right? Paul began this fool's speech, this... This comparison in boasting according to uh, the, the minds that, of the Corinthians and the false apostles. Paul says, I'll play the game, but I'm going to change the rules. I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. What is Paul doing in boasting? The, let me contrast this. The false apostles are boasting so that they would get a hearing by the church. So the church would believe that the false apostles are true apostles. That's the entire foundation of their boasting. We want this church to listen to us because of how impressive, how rhetorically beautiful and impressive we are, because our doctrine is fantastic, because we are powerful and significant leaders in our day. So that everything that the false apostles do is to boast that the church would believe in them. But Paul subverts it and changes the rules again. He says, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it, which means all of what Paul is about to say doesn't validate him as an apostle. He's not building a case based on human terms. He's not playing into human metrics. He's saying the way I'm talking is foolish. The way I'm talking is not like the Lord would, but as a fool does. There's nothing to be gained by this boasting. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now that perks your attention up, doesn't it? Well, Paul's about to share visions and revelations that God himself has given him. But at the same time, Paul is going to say, while I've received visions and revelations, there's nothing to be gained by me talking about them. So the question you have as we move through this passage is why? Why isn't there anything to be gained by this, Paul? It seems like Paul, as an apostle receiving visions from God himself, would be significant to the life of the church, wouldn't you think? But Paul says, no, there's nothing to be gained by it. Now, let me show you this. Here's why. Keep your finger in, for, in chapter 11. Go back to chapter 5. And I want to show you this where Paul talks about the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Because this has been Paul's intent all throughout the book of 2 Corinthians is to erode their confidence in the false teachers. To make them question, am I evaluating things on the Lord's terms or on human terms? 5.11, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. 
we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul's entire motive in dealing with the false apostles in the life of this church is to, is to arm the church with a way of thinking and a way of looking at life and teachers so that they might understand the validity is not on the outside, the validity is on the inside. You with me? Now come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm sorry, verse 12. Verse 2. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. I know a man in Christ... As Paul begins to talk about these visions and revelations, what you're going to find is Paul is incredibly dismissive. In fact, incredibly ignorant even to share what these were. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. The 14 years helps us timestamp this event. Uh, when you look at the dating of 2 Corinthians, you look at the dating of the beginning of Paul's ministry career, Paul has about a 10-year gap between Acts 9 and Acts 11 where he goes back to Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And he, during that 10 years, it seems, is where this vision happens. It doesn't correspond to any other vision that Paul receives in the book of Acts. And Paul has several in the book of Acts where the Lord speaks directly to him. But this vision is one that happened... A long time ago. Now, if you're, if you're 30, how, anybody who's 30 in here, raise your hand. Now, imagine you had a vision when you were 16. This goes back a long ways, right? This goes back a long time to a time in Paul's life where we don't know a lot about it in terms of all we know is where Paul was and the beginning of his ministry because it happens toward the beginning, so 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven. That, for the Jews, is the highest heaven. It's the place where God's presence was. I was caught up there in the body, out of the body. I don't know. God knows. Verse 3, and then I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, Paul, if you thought sharing your embarrassing story was not the way to validate your apostleship. The other way not to validate your apostleship is to say that you had a vision and a revelation and you won't even give your name. You won't even give what you heard. You won't even give whether or not you were up there or down here. That is the absolute worst way to write a New York Times bestseller. There's nothing that Paul has given us in this vision revelation, is there? He merely refers to himself in the third person. He says, I went up to heaven. I went up to the very paradise of God. Paradise is only used three times in your Bible. Once here in Revelation 2 to talk about the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. And number three, it's used of the thief on the cross when Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And Paul says, I'm caught up to the third heaven. I went up to the very paradise of God and I heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. So it seems that the false apostles are claiming to have some kind of supernatural revelation that the church can't get anywhere else. In effect, the false apostles are saying, I've got a word from the Lord for you. 
I've got something that God wants to say to you. And Paul says, I had a vision once too, only I'm not going to give you my real name. I'm not going to give you what I heard, and I can't even explain it to you or talk about it. Well, who do you want to listen to? I want to listen to the guy who has a word from the Lord for me. You see the temptation? Of the church that's leaning in toward the apostles who say, or the false apostles who say, we've got a word for you right now about your life. Verse 6. And this is really the culmination of Paul's uh, boasting here. Look at verse 6. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. Now watch this. What he just said is incredibly important for you to understand the, uh, how he um, dismantled the false apostles' claim. If I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. Why? For I would be speaking the truth. What are the false apostles speaking by extension? Starts with L, rhymes with I's. They're speaking lies. You know, I've been reading uh, Jeremiah recently. Jeremiah is a fascinating book to read, especially because uh, Jeremiah is the single true prophet that is in this book. And all along the way in Jeremiah's ministry, there are false prophets. Jeremiah prophesies before the nation of Judah gets taken into Babylon. And Jeremiah keeps talking about how the people of Babylon, people of Judah need to surrender and to give up to King Nebuchadnezzar. And all along the way, they have these false prophets who are the contrast to Jeremiah. And God, when he talks about them in Jeremiah 14, let me give you this. This is Jeremiah 14. You don't need to turn there. Jeremiah 14, the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Now that's a bad way to sum up their ministry, isn't it? So Paul says something similar here. If I should wish to boast, if you are going to give me the chance to talk about these visions and revelations, even if I did, even if I was willing to, I wouldn't be lying to you. Because they happened to me. Because they were true. So, if they're true, and they're unhelpful to build Paul's case as a true apostle, then why does he talk about them, right? Why does he bring this up here? And the reason Paul brings it up is to show you something that is happening in Paul. We're invited into Paul's spiritual life to see both how Paul thinks about himself and what God is doing in the Apostle Paul by giving him these visions and revelations. And what you're about to see is something far more important than visions and revelations. Because Paul is going to take you inside of you. He's going to take you inside of me. He's going to show you what is going on in our hearts. Look at verse 6. Here's why I refrain from it. If I should boast like this, I, would be, I wouldn't be a fool. I wouldn't be lying to you. I would be speaking the truth. But the reason I don't is for you. The reason I don't is for a very particular reason. I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. This is amazing. This is amazing. 
for an apostle to relate to the people of God. The apostle is aware of his own reputation, not that uh, you might think less of him. I'm sorry. Paul is aware of his reputation in the eyes of the church because he's concerned that the church might value him, look to him, think he's so impressive. Which is the complete opposite of what the false apostles are doing, right? What are the false apostles doing? Me, 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 me. You should listen to me. I should talk to you. I should hit you in the face. You should like it. I am a great false apostle. I should get your money. Uh, you should make sure you support my ministry. You should do all these things. And Paul says, I'm so concerned. I could talk to you about true things that the Lord has spoken to me, but I am too concerned that you might think more of me than you hear. What do we hear from Paul? When I was among you, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What have you heard of Paul? You've heard of his particular commitment to the preaching of Jesus Christ. You've heard a particular commitment in this book to the way in which men and women who are sinners can be reconciled to a holy God. What have you seen in Paul? You've seen the cost of ministry in his life. You've seen what it's cost him to serve Christ and to serve the church. So Paul is aware that there is a leadership temptation to point people's eyes and hearts to himself and not to Christ. And he says, there are certain things I won't say because I don't want my reputation in your eyes to get too high. So Paul says, I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to refuse. I refrain. Because I don't want your eyes on me. This is the temptation for every single leader in every single position. We all have a temptation to point people's eyes to ourselves and not to the Lord. Amen? We all feel that. We all feel that pride temptation that lives in our chest to want people to think well of us. To want people to be impressed by us. For us to be victorious wonderful, shining examples of what Christ has done in sinners. We love to take center stage. And Paul says, I won't do it. Now look at verse 7. Now the false apostles are going to fade. The church is going to fade. And you're going to have Paul and God having a one-on-one. So, Therefore, right, because I'm refraining from fighting for my own reputation in your midst. So, to keep me from becoming succeed, now here's what I want to do. I want to read this whole verse and I want you to see how the verse works. Because the verse begins and ends with the same idea. It begins with the purpose. Now in the middle is what God does. But the purpose of why God does what he does is bracketed by two of the exact same thing. Look at verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming succeeded. Uh, conce- uh, Let me try it again. To keep me from becoming conceited. Now, if you're an English teacher, you would take that last clause and you would say, you don't need that in this sentence. Right? You made that point in the beginning of the sentence. Why are you saying the same thing? You wrote this paper late at night. 
So to keep me from becoming succeeded. Here, conceited. I keep saying succeeded. To keep me from becoming conceited. Which means that as Paul is going about his ministry, he's concerned that the people would think too much of him. So he's particular to commit himself to true doctrine and to live with the disgrace of what comes from preaching the gospel. But now Paul moves into the fight. He moves into the place in all of our hearts where we love ourselves. He moves into what we think about ourselves. He moves in to recognize that though I have received these visions of revelations that I can't talk about, that I can't even explain to you, that whether or not I was in heaven or not in the body or not in the spirit or not, I don't know. God knows. But there's something happening in my heart. There's some danger in my heart that God is about to deal with, to prevent something. It's the vaccine that God is about to give me for pride. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn happened to me. A thorn wandered into my life. A thorn was outside of God's plan for my life. No, a thorn was given. But what, is it, what is a thorn? Do you ever get a thorn? I have kids who ride bikes all the time. Inevitably, they get thorns in their tires. What does, thorn, what does a thorn do in a tire? It do, right, make the noise. Thank you. It deflates. It reduces, right? So when a thorn happens in our life, in Paul's life, it reduces. It deflates Paul. And then Paul goes on to explain it. A thorn was given to me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me. That harass word is the same word used of Jesus during his passion of the soldiers that beat him. So here's, here's Paul with profound visions and revelations, surpassing great revelations. And God not only gives the revelation, but he then gives Paul a thorn. Now what does that mean? It means that God will use any and all resources up to and including demons to deal with pride. Do you know this word pride is used twice in this verse? The only other place it's used is when Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians about the Antichrist who exalts himself. Here's what Paul is saying in his relationship with God, that God is so committed to his own glory and so committed to Paul's good that God will intentionally afflict Paul to keep Paul humble. Don't you hate that? Isn't that, the, I mean, and I started by saying this, if there's one truth that has characterized my spiritual growth throughout the years. It's been this one, where I have come to the end of myself, where I have come to the end of my spiritual resources, where God has used circumstances and people and relationships and seasons of life to humble me and to expose me because I believe in myself too much. 
I am too confident in my abilities. I'm too confident in my wisdom. I'm too confident in my intellect. I'm too confident in my uh, maturity and wisdom and experience to handle what life throws at me. And inevitably, I will encounter situations that are just like this, where I will come to the end of myself. Here's what happens. A lot of times for us in suffering, suffering does a few things, but suffering typically preaches us a false message to us. I already said this, but I, I typically view suffering as an accident, right? That it's a, it's a situation in life that I didn't plan for, that certainly God isn't involved in. Uh, God wasn't paying attention, and suffering happened to me, and it was accidental. But then I start to preach, the suffering starts to preach a message to me about God, that God is both, um, uh, he's both absent, right? I'm just like the disciples in the boat with the storm, Jesus, you're sleeping. What are you doing? And number two, like the, the apostles in the boat say, don't you care that we're going to drown? Does that ever happen to you? When you suffer, you feel like God isn't there and that God doesn't care. And at least what this passage shows us is that Paul, in his relationship with God, reaches a situation where God gives him the pride vaccine and makes him limp. He makes him face a difficulty that is too much for him and too big for him. And commentators go back and forth on what this is. Some folks think it's, it's, a, it's the leader of the false apostles. Some folks think it's a physical disability. But I think what the text does for us is it keeps us generalized because we all have thorns, don't we? Have you had something in the past 10 years that has caused you to uh, lose confidence in yourself? Yeah, four of you. The rest of you are lying. <laughs> You've had situations in life where you get to the end of yourself and go, I'm not strong like I thought I was strong. I'm not sufficient like I thought I was sufficient. And what God is showing us here in the Apostle Paul's life and heart is that he so cares about the temptation to pride in Paul's life that he will intentionally keep Paul humble. But what suffering and this thorn is going to do for Paul happens here in verse 8. So how does Paul respond? What do you think? How do you think Paul's going to respond? Paul complained to Titus. Paul posted on Facebook how difficult this season of life was for him. Paul started tweeting Job verses. Don't miss this, verse eight, three times. I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Which tells you something about Paul. It tells you something about his prayer life. Where does Paul take pain? Where does Paul take this raw nerve spirituality that brings him to the end of himself where he feels compromised. This may have been, uh, if it's 14 years ago, imagine a 14-year kind of affliction that ebbs and flows, that flares up and dies down. And whether these prayers were all at once or these were over the course of that 14 years, we don't exactly know. But it shows you that Paul's prayers are persistent. 
I pray, I ask, I seek, I plead, I plead, I plead. God, please, God, please, God, please. Number two, Paul's prayers are personal. Who's he praying to? He is face to face with God. See, a lot of us when we face suffering, we go anywhere else but God. Because we really don't have that level of trust that God is willing to hear prayers like this. We really don't think that we're welcomed into his presence to wrestle with God in prayer. And Paul is under no illusions that he has any other place to go. Listen, when you're at the end of yourself, where else are you going to go? And Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. Finally, his prayer is particular. Paul's not praying general prayers. Oh, God, bless this food and this day as we go work and play. You can use that if you want. It's not a good prayer. It's a general prayer. We just want generalized blessings. Not Paul. Paul says, here's the thorn. Here's the problem. Here's what hurts. I'm going to ask you again. I'm going to ask you again. I'm going to ask you again. Please, would this leave me? What has been veiled in this passage up to this point? What haven't we been able to see? The visions and revelations, right? We can't see the visions and revelations. Paul says, I could talk about them, but I can't talk about them. But what we do see, what we are invited to, is the conversation, the sanctification moment between God and Paul. And it's as if God says, don't worry about the visions and revelations. Let me show you what I do to deal with the human heart so that you would see what's happening when you pray. So that you would see what I am working on in your own soul and in your own heart when you face situations where you come to the end of yourselves. Let me put on display what is going on when you pray and you lay hold of God. Verse 9. But, don't you hate that that's how that verse starts. But he said. Isn't that good news? He said, in the midst of my pain and my difficulty and when I'm at the end of myself, God speaks. Amen? Isn't that good? You don't have verse 9 saying, therefore, I guess God's up there. So that when Paul wrestles with God, he gets an answer. Now, is it the answer he wants? But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Literally, my grace is enough. You know what suffering makes me ask? Suffering makes me feel like I don't have enough. Right? When I face suffering and difficulty financially, I feel like I don't have enough money. When I face suffering and difficulty socially, and I feel like I don't have enough relationships, or I'm lonely, or I'm at the end of myself, I feel like I don't have enough. And the answer that Paul receives directs Paul to something about God. 
Not about his circumstances, not about his pain, not about the church, not about his sufficiency and his weakness. Paul, when he prays, gets face to face with God and the word that God gives to Paul is a truth about how God sees Paul. You with me? Which means where I stand with God in suffering is the most important thing. And God directs us not just to his disposition toward us, but God directs us to the very power that sustains us. My grace is sufficient for you. Literally, you could put it like this. My grace is all you need. But God, I'm, I'm weak, and I'm at the end of myself, and I can't go forward, and I don't know what to do, and I don't know how to go forward with this church that I'm, in, I'm scared is going to lose the very salvation and the grace by which we stand. God, I've been through all of these sufferings and these difficulties, and this one won't go away. And God says, my grace is all you need. Well, why? Look at what he says. For my power is made perfect. Literally, my power is made complete. My power is seen. My power is made evident in weakness. What becomes the evidence of Paul's true apostolic calling is that he is profoundly insufficient to the task. He cannot do it. He cannot do what he's called to do. You remember when God wrestles with Jacob? And when you wrestle with God, you always lose? Because God just decides to pop that little, I couldn't get it. Forget it, you try it. He decides to pop that tendon in his hip and Jacob walks with a limp the rest of his life and he won't let God go. Does he walk limping? He does because he's encountered God. And the thing that you know about Jacob the rest of his life is that he went face to face with God. The thing that you know about Paul when he prays is that he goes face to face with God and what he hears from God is not, you can do it. He doesn't hear from God. Hang in there. What he hears from God is that all that I have done in your life and what I'm going to do through your life is accomplished only because of my grace. So Paul has to hear, watch this, he has to hear no. And the verb tenses are fascinating here, aren't they? Three times I pleaded, past tense. 14 years ago, I was given a thorn. Where does God's grace show up? Today and into the future. When's his grace sufficient? Today. Which means every single day, Paul is dependent as an apostle of God on God's grace to sustain him and to strengthen him. Every day. You need grace every day? I do. You need grace to hear that when you pray? God doesn't expect you to be sufficient. He doesn't expect you to be accomplished. He expects you to be dependent and weak. And by his faithfulness to wean us off of our commitment to pride and to self-esteem and to self-exaltation, he will give us things to keep us near and close to him. What causes Paul to draw near to God? Pain. What causes Paul to go face to face with God in persistent and personal prayer? Pain. 
We all feel vaguely guilty that we don't pray enough, right? But God faithfully draws us near to himself to speak a word of his grace and kindness toward us in our pain and in our difficulty to remind us that we can't do it. Look, I don't know what thing is in your life right now where you are weak, but part of that struggle is admitting that you can't do it. You aren't strong enough. You're not sufficient. You don't have all you need. You are profoundly self-deceived because of the mirage of pride that lives in our hearts. And God is inviting you into an encounter and experience with him where you would know deeper experiences of his grace because of your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see how free Paul is? Nobody likes confessing that they're weak. Nobody feels like they want to talk about the ways in which life has eaten their lunch and they've come to the end of themselves until they encounter God. And when they encounter God and they recognize that his grace is sufficient, his grace is enough, that his grace is all that I am depending on, that I don't need to be impressive, I don't need to be uh, popular, I don't need to have my reputation rise in the eyes of others, I am completely and wholly dependent on a God of grace who loves me and has proven that in the cross for me. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest upon me. That word rest is a great one. It's the word that means uh, in other places to set up a tent. It's as if Paul in his weakness, he hears the no from God and he still has the thorn and he says, as I boast about my weakness, Christ sets up his tent with me. Isn't that good? Don't we need to know that when we are at our weakest, God is not far away? That when we are exposed and we are a raw nerve and we don't have the strength to do what God is calling us to do, that Christ is right there with us. And Paul closes this passage with verse 10 to give us a general picture, to say this is, listen, this is for everybody, isn't it? This isn't just for Paul. This is for all of us who are weak. This is for all of us who come to the end of ourselves. This is for all of us who this week are going to face situations that we aren't strong enough to face. For the sake of Christ then, whatever obedient step Jesus is calling me to take, whatever obedience step that Jesus is asking me to walk out in my workplace or in my marriage or in my parenting or with my money or on my campus or, or in my educational pursuits or whatever God is calling me to, I am content with weaknesses when I don't have enough, with insults, relationally, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, have you seen how Paul has been opened up for us to look at? We've gotten to see his heart and to see Paul wrestle with his weakness and his difficulty. So that by the end of this, we have a picture of the apostle in the Corinthian church. Who is pleading with God to take away the thorn. And whether God removes it or whether God gives Paul the strength to walk with it the rest of his life, 
We all count on God to make us sufficient for that day with the strength that he provides, right? That's all of us. We all do that. See, what makes Paul content? What makes Paul glad? It's when he takes his eyes off of himself, he gives up the mirage of being sufficient and excellent and powerful, and he puts his eyes on God. And he receives from God grace for the day to meet his needs, to allow him to walk faithfully into the life that God has provided for him. And on one hand, we feel exposed, don't we? We feel weak. But on the other hand, we discover that God has more than enough grace for sinners like us. Amen? Father, we need a passage like this. So often we are exposed and we come to the end of ourselves. And Father, I thank you that you are more committed to our sanctification than we are. Father, we give thanks that you know that pride is a temptation that easily lurks. Pride is is a temptation that easily pulls our eyes off of you. Would you give us a heart as a church to look to you for grace? as people who have no spiritual resources whatsoever, who are dependent on a God of heaven and earth who looks down and protects us from the pride that so easily blinds all of us and would invade our life with suffering, would give us a thorn in his grace to prove and remind us of his love and of his sufficiency. Father, we give thanks for Jesus who experienced the wrath of God falling on him because of the sins that we commit. So Father, we are weak and we are dependent. But would you give us deep theology to boast in these things? And that your grace would be tasted among the people of this church that we would experience it and know it. And as we pray and as we seek your face, you would speak to us the truth that we are saved by grace, that we are brought in to your presence by grace, that we are loved and known because of your grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.